Listeners, welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by Gerald DeRosa, Barry Casson, and Barry Chan as our host this week. Hi, everyone. How's everyone doing? Great. Doing pretty well. Happy to be back, Danny. <laughs> Good. Happy to have you back on my show, the one <laughs> that, that I own. Great. So we have a, a you know a, a new set of hosts today, and I'm really excited to. I hand over to our resident who's going to be presenting, and that's Dr. Alex Bohm. She's one of the current internal medicine R1s um, who, who tells me that she saw a really interesting case overnight with some great senior residents who pawned off the responsibility to <laughs> present this case tonight. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to what you've prepared for us. So uh, maybe I'll hand over to you and uh, you can take it away. Alex, just before, you, uh, Alex, yeah, just before you right, start... <laughs> I wanted to introduce Gerald DeRosa and Barry Chan. Barry Chan is the CTU director at St. Paul's. Welcome, Barry. And um, Gerald DeRosa is well known to all the internal medicine residents over the last number of years and is head of medicine at the Royal Columbian Hospital and the CTU director. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Barry. That was a a much more gracious uh, host performance than mine. (laughs) Thanks for fixing that up. All right, guys. So we'll we'll hand over to Alex and uh, and and let's uh, see what we can do on this case. Okay, great. So this case is a 68 year old female who presents to hospital with a three day history of worsening dyspnea, initially requiring five liters of oxygen. She is found to have new onset anemia with a hemoglobin of 40 and hyponatremia with a sodium of 116. In terms of her past medical history, she has good syndrome, diagnosed in Japan in 2016 in the context of recurrent upper respiratory tract infections and sinusitis. She first started being treated with IVIG back in 2016 and has been on this for the past three years or so. Of note, her dose has recently been up titrated to maintain her IgG trough, and her last IVIG treatment was two days prior to her presentation. She also has thymoma status post-thymectomy and is followed by radiation oncology for this with surveillance CT scans. She also has a recent diagnosis of bronchiectasis, which was noted on a CT chest abdominal pelvis that was done as part of her surveillance for thymoma. Furthermore, she has a history of gastric varices, splenomegaly, and portal hypertension without a diagnosis of cirrhosis. Apparently, she's followed by GI with serial ultrasounds for this, but we did not have access to notes at the time. She has a history of a cholestatic liver pattern with an elevated ALP and GGT. As of recent, uh, an ultrasound showed a smooth liver contour with a splenomegaly at 13.6 centimeters. And she had an EGD um, a couple months prior, which just showed grade one varices for what she's being followed up on. Her medications include ceftiroxime, 500 POBID, which she was started on a couple weeks prior, as well as septra, one tab PO daily, uh, started in a couple weeks, a couple months prior as well for prophylaxis. In terms of her history of presenting illness, she was doing well until three to five days ago when she began to experience worsening dyspnea. She, she states she was unable to walk more than 20 steps before feeling short of breath, and usually she's able to be fully independent and walk at length without feeling this. This has occurred on a background of slowly progressive dyspnea for the past month. She endorses orthopnea, but no PND. She has not noted increased peripheral swelling or weight gain. 
She feels tired with a mild headache, but no chest pain. She also has been nauseated with one episode of vomiting, but no diarrhea. She has no associated fevers, chills, cough, or sputum production, and no hemoptysis. Of note, she did have a fairly recent diagnosis of bronchiectasis, as I said. The appearance suggested um, on this CT scan that there could be a mycobacterial infection, and she was seen by respirology for this. She had sputum AFBs that were negative times three in the community, and she was initiated on cefuroxime, as I said at the beginning of the month, in the context of her shortness of breath, and she remains on this now but her shortness of breath has worsened despite this. She denies any recent travel sick contacts or COVID-19 contacts. She is fully immunized as well. In terms of her review of, sy- of symptoms, she has no visual changes or neck stiffness, no palpitations, no Molina stools, no hematemesis or hemoptysis or any other bleeding manifestations, no urinary symptoms, no rashes, joint pain, aptus ulcers, no constitutional symptoms, Her social history is pretty unremarkable. She lives in the West End, no smoking, no alcohol, no recreational drugs. And um, before I stop, I'll just give you a brief course in the emergency department. So as I said, in the ED, she was found to be tachypnic and hypoxic, placed initially on five liters of oxygen. She was found to have this low hemoglobin at 40. Previous hemoglobins were completely normal. And she was given two units of PRBCs by the time we saw her, but she still was on two liters of oxygen. And as I said, her other critical lab value was this hyponatremia with a sodium of 116. And I'll stop there for now. Whew. All right. That's a, lot, that's a lot to take in. There's a lot going on yeah. there. So mm-hmm. um, maybe I, I'm going to kind of turn turn to the other hosts here. And maybe can we just do a little bit of starter work on the past medical history? So we got a whole bunch of stuff in there. What's everyone's kind of comfort level or knowledge level around Goods syndrome? Because I would say mine would be low in general. I have no idea what it is. Oh, I can tell <laughs> okay, you. Okay, I'm I I slightly more. <laughs> okay. I, I, as far as I understand, it's an immunodeficiency with mm-hmm. thymoma, but I, I don't know what kind of immune deficiency. Gerald, BK, any, any, anything else? Or do we, do we have to beg Alex for content knowledge here before we even begin? Yeah, I, I, I know as much as you do, Danny, which is very limited. <laughs> Right, so I, I don't know the context of the specificity of the immune deficiency that's associated with this. No, but okay. I think that I think, but I think you've made a really good point. Is that people who come with these diagnoses? I mean, we're not encyclopedic. Google is encyclopedic. I'm interested in the concept not only of the diagnosis, but the fact it was made in Japan. And so I would really like to know. I mean, everything else was really it's important. But was she visiting Japan? Did she go there for a diagnosis? Is she Japanese? I mean, what's the evolution of that component of her presentation? Because I think that might inform us a little bit about how we can start to proceed. Alex, can you help us? Yeah. So she is Japanese herself and at around this time of diagnosis was traveling to and from Japan for six months at a time. And so she was being worked up here as well as in Japan somewhat simultaneously and has physicians in both locations. So it just so happened that they came across the diagnosis while she was in Japan, but she still had a home in Vancouver at the time. Good syndrome is hypo is a hypo like polyclonal hypogammaglobulinemia. So it is an immunodeficiency syndrome. And she's followed by allergy and immunology for this. And that's who is administering her IVIG. And basically, they titrate her IVIG based on her immunoglobulin levels. And then, as I said, her 
IgG trough before her next IVIG was starting to be too low. And so they increased her IVIG dose as of late. And so Alex, just another question just about that specific diagnosis, because um, is the diagnosis phenotypic or is it genetic? I believe it is phenotypic. And you were right in that it's associated with the thymoma. It's actually like a perineoplastic kind of process associated with thymoma that leads to the hypogamma globulinemia. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you. Barry makes a good point for the listeners in that like people get labeled with a diagnosis, but I think it's very important sometimes to go back and, and you know, get into the meat of that diagnosis, especially when it's a rare and unusual diagnosis, because I think we've all been burned sometimes with a diagnosis that's been established, quote unquote. But when you go back to it and you say, you know, who established this diagnosis? How was it established? Sometimes it is questionable as it labeled that person forever. This sounds pretty legitimate with an allergist immunologist who's done their, you know, so I think I'm reassured with that. But uh, it's a good point to, to be made is, is, you know, not just to rely on the information that's provided. I, I like that skepticism because sometimes you get, like you said, you get a diagnosis and, and like it, maybe your resident took that history or your, your med student or, you know, is a trustworthy person and they reported in a medical history and you go, oh, did, did the patient tell you that? Or did you read that in a note? Like where'd that come from? They're like, oh, the patient told me they have good syndrome and patients are, are very reliable for many parts of the history, but sometimes there's a, there's a mistake there. And the doctor said, you might have good syndrome. And right, like, and, and that is a completely different scenario than, you know, what Barry was getting at that, like, oh, they have a genetic diagnosis, you can find the piece of paper that proves that they have it. And every clinical diagnosis, we have to say, like, well, that's the clinical diagnosis for now, until something changes. And then maybe we need to maybe it morphs into something else, it evolves. So I, I like, I like that skepticism. Any other thoughts on the medical history before we get into this acute presentation? I guess one further thought is that in in expanding the um, the understanding before we get into the chronic the subacute and the acute processes is probably to understand the history and the natural. Or I would try to understand the natural history and the associations of her syndrome diagnosis. But as well, we're pretty familiar with some of the aspects of thymoma, but the other aspect of her is that she's we've sort of taken that she's had a thymoma and then she's had radiation, which is which I would assume that first of all was an incomplete resection and secondly maybe uh, and maybe a a a carcinoma associated with the thymoma and so to flush out those things we know about thymoma because there's a lot happening here that might be associated with something that we're just not familiar with. I think even further to that, you've got a person with multiple unusual diagnoses, right? So they, they now have good syndrome, which none of us have probably heard about. They have a thymoma. And now they have also this completely undefined portal hypertension, right? right. NYD. So, yeah. you know, who's been worked up by a gastroenterologist because they've had EGD, right? So you're now adding a third diagnosis that is puzzling. And I think that you know, sometimes, obviously, when you're treating this patient in the emergency department, you're going to do the most judicious immediate treatments. But this does warrant, you know, a pretty deep dive into, you know, previous consultations, what tests were done for the liver, you know, I would presume that that may get unearthed at some point during this discussion, or, you know, the team would work on that, you're obviously not going to have that at 11pm at night, I, I would eventually want to flesh that out because the the liver 
you know, it's kind of like typical patterns and atypical patterns of presentation. And it's always the atypical pattern of presentation when a host staff is reading the, the that set off your alarm bells. And obviously this, I don't understand why the patient has spinomegaly and portal hypertension with no cirrhosis. <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> right. Totally. So uh, maybe, maybe I can ask uh, Barry Chan, um, with this presentation to hospital, it, can you kind of walk through or kind of explain what your approach is going to be? Like, how are you going to work through these problems given the context of that, that medical history that we're still trying to figure out as, as we care for the patient? Yeah, so I'm going to divide the problem into three mainly. Number one is what she presented with, which is like, uh, I guess, an acute to subacute uh, dyspnea. That's number one. Number two is the anemia. And then number three is the hypotensity. Solve these problems first, narrow it down, and then make the picture a little bit less muddy. So I think first thing is with the anemia, the shortness of breath. With anemia for with a hemoglobin of forty, it does make you think that it can contribute to some degree of dyspnea on exertion, but not hypoxia. That's the unusual part. But uh, I would wonder. A Alex was saying that her hemoglobin was normal from prior. I wonder how long ago. Number two is any signs of bleeding. If not signs of jaundice, if she's not jaundice, she's probably or or having dark urine. She's not unlikely hemolyzing. Then she's not making the blood. If that is the if if those are ruled out. Number two, she got two units of blood. Does she feel any better in terms of her dyspnea? If it does, it does take some parts of it away. But again, there is still the uh, hypoxia part. And then I would need to do a physical exam to at least try to narrow it down for the hypoxia and dyspnea part. Quickest thing is just take a look at a JVP. If it's high, hepatojugular reflux, because she has orthopnea. And that will be a very simple way of just ruling that out at that moment. But it's unlikely, though, because if she got two units of blood and she didn't get worse, it's unlikely CHF. And then with regards to the sodium, the same thing. The JVP will help to see if she's uvolemic, hypovolemic, or hyper, to just start narrowing the differential that way if at the bedside without further testing. And let me just, before you go on there, so as you're solving the acute problem, I'm still stuck, stuck on the previous issues. And I just want to make... The point that I make to me, but not to anybody else, is that we, too often we ignore not only the diagnosis, but what's been done because it's been it's the treatment of the diagnosis we don't understand. So I think in this lady, before embarking on those thoughts about other things, I would look to see the complications and treatment of IBIG and SEPTRA, both of which can cause problems independent of whatever the diagnosis is and however and I think to not consider those for me at this point would be just to pass over something that's very obvious just because they're in the neighborhood and what are you thinking of in particular there like is is there a particular reaction like hemolysis or something that that you're particularly so there's a variety of yeah, there's a variety of, uh, of reactions. Well, SEPTRA certainly is, uh, I mean, there's a whole host of react, uh, problems with SEPTRA, even though you've used it chronically, from hemolytic anemia to uh, abnormalities in liver enzymes to whatever, to in, an inflammatory response. And then IVIG, I don't use that much, but there certainly are documented problems with the use of IVIG. And, and as I say, I've familiarized myself with those issues as I was starting to think about these acute presentations. Okay. 
So maybe now we can, we'll, we'll get a little bit more information, maybe some physical exam findings, some extra labs, what, what you folks did kind of overnight. Uh, back to you, Alex. Yeah, so I have an exam and some labs for you. So um, on exam, patient was asebral. She was tachycardic with a heart rate of 105. Her rest rate was 21, and her blood pressure was 123 over 74. And she was satting 98% on two liters of oxygen when we went to see her. In general, she looked well, but was in mild respiratory distress. Her cardiac exam showed a normal S1, S2 without murmurs or extra heart downs. Her peripheral pulses were good, but it was noted that her GVT was markedly distended at the level of the jaw. She also had mild pitting edema to her mid shins. Her respiratory exam was uh, did show some decreased air entry with coarse crackles at the bases. And again, she had that mild increased work of breathing. Her belly was soft and non-tender, but there was significant hepatosplenomegaly palpated. Her neuro exam was normal, and her lymph node exam showed a uh, palpable left cervical lymph node. When we went to do it, when I went to do a bedside pocus, again confirmed the GVP was at the level of the jaw. Her IVC was four centimeters and less than fifty percent collapsible with respiration. Her cardiac function appeared grossly normal, and she had B lines throughout her lung. In terms of her investigations, um, I'll give you the rest of her CBC now. So she had a normal white count at 5.2. Again, her hemoglobin was 40. Uh, her MCV was 88, and her platelets were also normal at 274. The differential was also normal for her white count. Her sodium was 116, potassium 3.8, chloride 88, bicarb 19, and her anion gap was normal when corrected for albumin. Her extended lights were normal. Her liver fun- or her kidneys were normal with a creatinine of 70 and an EGFR of 77. Her liver enzymes uh, showed a slight elevation in ALP at 186 and slight elevation of AST at 42. GGT and ALT were normal. Her liver function tests, including INR, PTT, bilirubin, albumin, were all normal. Her BNP was 848. We do not have a baseline. And her troponin was normal. Her urine ACR was 2. Urine studies, which were difficult to interpret because they were after blood, uh, showed a serum osm that was low at 250, urine osm of 208, and urine sodium of 53. Her ECG showed sinus tachycardia. And her chest x-ray, which was done prior to the RBCs, showed some vascular redistribution with mild pulmonary edema without clear consolidation. Is that is everyone okay with that? Does anyone need me to repeat anything? Um, Timing-wise, Alex, was the X-ray in the exam app, it was after the blood had been after delivered? The blood. Right. So the X-ray was before the blood. She already had some mild vascular redistribution or some pulmonary edema and vascular redistribution on her X-ray. We didn't have one after the blood. Um, right. But the exam that I did was after the blood. And then of note for her previous CBCs, uh, yeah. hemoglobin baseline 120, although it's slowly been decreasing since 2020. Most recent hemoglobin we had, which was four months prior, was 105, and her CBC otherwise normal. So, and Alex, you may have mentioned it, and I missed it, that the heart size was normal. It was just pulmonary edema suggested yeah. by chest x yeah. mm-hmm. No cardiomegaly. Can you just remind us again, I'm sorry, thymoma and the radiation, were, what was the date on that? 
what was the date? Um, yeah. Her thymoma was resected in August 2017. And I do not have here when she last was had radiation, but it was some time ago because she's currently just followed up with surveillance CT scans for the past two years. Okay, thank you. So maybe maybe I can uh, ask Gerald to have kind of first crack at these labs. Sorry, like, what? a lot. No, no, that, that, that's great, right? And and I have to also just before I go to Gerald, the fact that our ones are now like using ultrasound and doing all that fanciness. I missed that all that. So I never learned how to use an ultrasound like that. And I think that's so impressive. So, okay, now we're over to Gerald. What, like, first crack at these labs, like, what strikes you as um, important? Or, or what are you kind of learning from these labs as kind of uh, on first glance? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, they're not as abnormal as I expected them to be. So, you know, you, you have a hemoglobin of 40. I thought maybe other cell lines would be down. They aren't. So, it is an isolated anemia, which I think is interesting in and of itself. When you go to the hyponatremia, um, I think once again, the other electrolytes are reasonable. It is hard to interpret the urine studies given that they receive volume at the time. So it does make it a bit more challenging to determine how your kidney is supposed to behave once you've given someone volume. But I mean, if you take this on first glance, it's not without going too much into hyponatremia. At this point, the urine osmolality is lower than the serum osmolality, right? So they should be correcting. So I think we're, we're missing the, we're potentially missing the etiology because they were volume repleted, right? And it would have been nice to have gotten the urine studies before. The liver is unimpressive. And, uh, you know, you've got a very, very mild elevation of some of the enzymes and anything can do that practically speaking, including drugs and stuff like Barry said. So I'm not really, it hasn't gotten me that much farther uh, in the process, mm -hmm. the actual labs itself. The BMP is a bit high at 848. We don't have a baseline. So at the present time, you've still got the same problems that we had, the anemia, the hyponatremia. And I think on the physical exam, you've added in some element of volume overload to the process, right? But right. based on the quick scan of the heart, right? But recognizing that I also did not train in an era where I had the capacity to assess the heart, but I think it is also probably, you know, some of the things are a lot more reproducible. I think cardiac function and stuff is probably going to require more of a formal echocardiogram, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And Barry Chan, can I ask you what your thoughts are on the anemia? You can give me your overall thoughts, but but the anemia being so aggressively low, the microcytosis being kind of mild, right? The MCV was 88. And there, it, it seemed, you know, I, I suppose, I, I wonder, do you, do you see this as a case of a slowly progressive anemia that four months ago was 105 and prior to that it was 120? Like, how are you kind of pulling that together? What do you think of that? Yeah, it's, it, the way she's presenting, it does make me think that it's not if it was a bleed, it was not sudden because she's too well compensated for it. It must have been if it is a bleed, it's happened slowly, maybe through her gastric varices or portal hypertensive gastropathy or something along the portal gastric system. That's what it seems to me. If if it was a bleed, if there is a like anemia, chronic disease, some sort of myelosuppressive uh, component there, sure, that that can certainly be there. 
So, I mean, if, if it's difficult, I can just do a ridiculous side count and then I will know for sure if the, if the, if the bone marrow is actually working or not. That will be number one. But the, uh, for the shortness of breath part, that what I thought is this person is clearly in CHF and given this patient had radiation before to the thymoma, maybe they develop constrictive pericarditis or uh, constrictive myopathy and then starting to show itself. And then with the anemia, depending on how fast it's coming on, they also can have high output cardiomyopathies as well. So that's how I can tie the two together. So I'd like to support what Barry says that, that, you know, I think that sometimes we get, we're presented a patient with laboratory abnormalities that sometimes we try to explain the laboratory before we explain the patient's presentation. And if we didn't know anything about the lab for this patient and she came in dyspnea and we examined her, we'd find that she had a high JVP and, and that would be, that would, that would be satisfying at least to understand some part of her presentation independent and so I, as i say it's some just it's just how i think and how i do things sometimes we get we lose the essence of the problem by circling around to try to explain laboratories that are difficult to explain at, at the best of times and so i would agree with barry that to me the, the real issue is for all of her presentation the jvp is the most significant component at this point that I've seen of her presentation. Hmm. So it, are, are you, are you saying that, you know, her, her dyspnea, her hypoxia, these things are for the moment well wrapped up as she's in heart failure. Um, no. And, and, okay. So, so elaborate so, a little bit. What are you, what are you suggesting we kind of do next? Well, so, so I think her dyspnea, um, so the, in, in many senses, this is, this is independent of anything else. If we saw a patient who presented this way, we would do an examination and those parts of the examination we would look for are the things that we've already been told. So I think that she has an elevated jugular venous pressure. We haven't explained why it's elevated. We just know it's elevated. So at least that part of her examination, what we don't know is, we, what we do know is that she's not hypovolemic by JVP. And, and so that's the only conclusion we can make. So her JVP at least would be the starting point for me. And then I was begin to consider why that's elevated. It's surprising. And I said, I wasn't going to talk about the last, but it's surprising that her BNP, if she's presenting this way, is, is really relatively low. And, but, but independent of that, I guess that's, that would be my starting point. And I kind of go down that algorithm of trying to explain those things one further thing I'm going to mention, and and I'm just going to say it now because it really has it's the history again. It's not laboratory. And in trying to explain um, this lady's presentation, because we've had problems in trying to even understand what what good syndrome is and all these other things, I wondered if her hepatosplenomegaly is related to schistosomiasis. And the only reason I say that is she's Japanese and she's back and forth. She's got these problems. No one's identified chronic livers. And so is there a reason that we're seeing these things? And is that part of the historical component that we don't know? I'm, I don't have an answer here. I'm just saying, I'm just letting you, I'm blathering on about how I think about it. <laughs> I, I, I think it is a, it's always been your pattern to uh, routinely pay attention to the things that people would not routinely pay attention to. So I, I think you've always liked to 
spend a little bit more time than the average person in the social history and in the travel history. And while some that sometimes that doesn't yield anything, sometimes it does, right? So not not uh, forgetting that that she is. Uh, all of this is in the context of she's a, a patient who has significant immune suppression and she doesn't spend all of her time in, in Canada, right? She has yeah. other exposures. So I, yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. So a couple of points, uh, uh, you know, I think Barry Chan raised a good point about high output cardiac failure because I do think uh, about these scenarios where we've transfused patients and then they go into failure and volume overload. However, um, when you look at the patient's initial presentation, uh, she was on six liters and then received the blood and actually went down to two liters. And generally, we would see the person get more hypoxic and that would be problematic. So it, it even though it's something I think about uh, with these very low uh, compensated hemoglobins, it may not be the case in, in her. And that, that points to Barry Casson's point that you have to look clinically at the situation and say, you know, they're volume overload, they're short of breath. I tend to live in the world of numbers because that's what I do as a nephrologist. So, I mean, I still go back to like finding the abnormalities in the labs because I love labs. Um, and so the other point I was going to make, you know, Barry Chan has raised the point about the reticulocyte count, but, you know, I've had many great teachers over the years, including Barry Casson there. Um, but the teaching award is, is for us in our term medicine is named after hematopathologist. And uh, he showed me after a month in the, in the lab that you can learn a lot about the patient from their blood smear. And so to me, one of the first things that I would do here is I would actually get that blood smear looked at and phone the hematopathologist and ask them to look at it for me and see if there are any clues on that blood smear. Because, uh, you know, that's the game we used to play when I was a resident. I, mean, I did a hematopathology elective is you know, look at the slide, guess what the patient has, then go up and review the chart. Yeah. Um, which is kind of the opposite of what Barry's saying, listen to the patient. I'm going the opposite way. But um, but yeah, no, a blood smear often tells you a lot of information. And that's probably what I would, you know, get some information like pretty quickly. Okay. And I would take the strategy of hiding under a pile of coats until uh, someone smarter solves this case. We all have our own strategies and they're all uh, very reasonable. So maybe we'll go back to Alex and see uh, kind of what, what proceeded next. What did you folks do? Sure. So after finding her volume overloaded, which was a bit of a surprise and still on oxygen, we decided to give her some Lasix overnight um, with her blood transfusion. One of her blood transfusions was still running. Uh, her hypoxia with that did resolve in the morning and she had really good urinary output. As a result, um, her hemoglobin incremented to 65 and her sodium increased from 116 to 121. So because she'd put out so much urine, we had to DDAVP lock her to prevent further rapid overcorrection. We also sent off more labs. So for her anemia workup, we did a lot of things um, everyone was talking about. So uh, her retic count was nine with a retic index of 0.73, so suggestive of hypoproliferation. Her uh, hemolysis labs, LDH, Billy, haptoglobin were all normal. Her peripheral spear, smear noted normocytic anemia with a critical hemoglobin and reticulocytopenia. And then they just kind of gave a differential that said chronic disease, secondary to underlying disease, blood loss, etc. is what they said. We also did an iron panel, which showed a normal... Uh, T sat at 0.26 and a high ferritin of 590. 
and SPEP did not show a monoclonal protein, but did show her evidence of hypogammaglobulinemia, which is consistent with what she had um, on her serum aminoglobulins as well and consistent with her good syndrome. Her serum free light chain ratio was normal and uh, vitamin B12 and TSH were also normal. Uh, because she had this hypoproliferation, we also did an infectious workup for her. Blood cultures, sputum cultures, urinalysis, all negative. Extended viral panel was also negative. CMV, EBV, parvo, um, hepatitis, A, B, C, and HIV, all negative. Um, she also did get an echocardiogram as well, which showed a normal EF at 60% with normal size, normal function of both the right and the left sides. Her PASP was 25, and she had, as I said, yeah, normal diastolic dysfunction or diastolic function. She also had a CT chest abdo pelvis because of this splenomegaly kind of question. And this showed that her splenomegaly had actually increased from her previous scan a couple months prior. It was now 15.2 centimeters. Um, there was a stable appearance of her bronchiectasis. And uh, she did have some uh, mild right basal septal thickening and small effusions, likely sequelae of edema. And she had multiple new lung nodules not seen on her previous imaging that measured up to seven millimeters. And the note was consider repeat CT. I will also tell you that she's had a thorough workup for her, uh, her liver disease in the past, which has all been negative. So she had, she had all those viral uh, hepatitis serologies, which were negative. ANA was negative. AMA was negative. Anti-smooth muscle was negative. Alpha-1 antitrypsin was negative. And as part of your infectious workup, like, so, so I think a standard infectious workup is is reasonable, but we we again have to like remember how immune suppressed she is, and we're supporting her with IVIG. But you know, there's that background that actually her kind of baseline background immune suppression it's worsening. So maybe there's going to be a change in interval of the IVIG. And um, I can't quite recall exactly when her last dose was, but I would probably recheck her immunoglobulins to to kind of see where she's at coming into hospital and. Um, you know, think about infections that, you know, lung infections can cause hyponatremia, but there are some infections in particular, one that she's susceptible to, and two that are known to cause hyponatremia. So I, I might kind of remind myself what those are in addition to, you know, Legionella and and such, and make sure that I've, I've looked for those things. Uh, maybe look into exposures that could be associated, but um, try and crack that uh, hyponatremia um, that way. So Guys, what, what do you think? Yeah, Gerald, go ahead. I was going to say, sniffing at the component of the hyponatremia seems to be volume-driven, right? Because, you know, True. you see the urinal osmolality is corrected, plus they had to DDVP lock when she got volume. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know how much is, because I was thinking SIADH and some sort of weird and wonderful, you know, chronic lung infection too. But the fact that they had to lock with just minimal volume seems to kind of indicate that the large, I mean, I don't know, over the next few days, we'll presume it normalized at some point if that was that, if that was the driver. It did, yeah. yeah. So, um, but, but what this shows is she has cardiac muscle involvement. It may not be, it's not dilated, but she's got cardiac dysfunction. So we, that, that's informative in terms of diseases that can affect the myocardium 
as part of her whole overall presentation. And the other new finding, or the other finding that was that Alex presented, is that now she's got pulmonary nodules, uh, which she didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And those two findings, I think, are more keylog to try and understanding this than the other things that we've seen. Because yeah, that's that's what that's what I think. Very channel it's on on your mind. Uh, I'm still trying to wrestle it through. There's, I can't put it all together. I'm just curious. Does she feel a lot better? I, I like to like keep the problem simple and like eliminate what may be confounding the picture. Like, is the shortness of breath can be all attributed to CHF? Right? Does she felt better any at all? She feels so, much better in the morning after she got the blood and the Lasix. Yeah, I, I'm just anchoring the heart because. I do POCUS, so I see a lot of it. It's a bit unusual for her to to hold that much, and then the heart looks completely normal. And if they and if they did um, interrogate diastolic dysfunction for for diastolic dysfunction, it, I, I mean, for now, it just make me think this is high output cardiac failure uh, at the uh, when she came in. Um, Diuresis, give her the blood; it should go away. Then the question is left is, well, I will move the CHF picture away, is why, where, where did the blood go? And the lung nodule and the splenomegaly, can I tie the three together? Yeah. Well, Barry, one more thing. I mean, she has hypoplasia of her, of her red cells. Yes. Right? That's That's been demonstrated by the laboratory. So, so whatever we're deciding on, she has hypoplastic red, or she has red cell aplasia. Yes. Subacute. Plus all these other things, yeah. Well, yeah. unless those masses are extra hemat extra medullar hematopoiesis entities, but I, I don't know. Her spleen is bigger. Her liver is big. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to tie it together, I agree with Barry. I mean, I'm I'm still see. I can say I agree with Barry, and then it's <laughs> yeah. That's that's fifty percent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think. Barry Kasten's hit the nail on the head. I mean, the person has a, a hemoglobin of 40. If they were had blood loss, unless they were iron deficient or they lacked the materials, they should their retic count should be high. They should be making retics to compensate. So this person has a retic count of nine, like a fractional retic count that's very low. So therefore their bone marrow is not working or their red cell line for their bone marrow is not working. Now, that's where I go after Right. And I mean, I, I don't know at what point you're allowed to call a friend because, you know, I, but, you know, you, one would think that you would start to think about talking to your hematology colleagues about entities related to IBIG infusion, the medications the patient's on, the history of the thymoma, and, and see, you know, if they have any bright ideas or if they want to proceed with, you know, definitive, you know, diagnostics, which may end up being a bone biopsy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to solve it ourselves, and you now are thinking pulmonary nodules, you know, immunosuppression, and strength, you know, unknown splenomegaly. I mean, you're you're going to have to start to think of infiltrative um, conditions. You know, whether it be an infiltrative infection or infiltrative disease, right? That can then, you know, um, cause marrow infiltration, some lung manifestations, the splenomegaly. Um, maybe there is some subtle cardiac anomalies, right? Where, you know, you give them extra fluid or you put them in a situation of stress and they manifest failure. But once you optimize their situation, you can no longer detect the failure. But 
I don't think that rules out that there isn't, you know, cardiac muscle involvement to some degree, right? So those are the things I'd be thinking. But once again, you need to find a source, right? That's, you know, so you've got pulmonary nodules, so you could talk to your lung colleagues, or you've got, you know, an anemia with no reticulocyte like, count, so you could talk to your eating colleagues. But um, people want to go another direction, but that's kind of where I'd be looking at. Can I, can I just say something though, uh, Gerald, to you? Uh, the problem that I find with that the approach is that my experience is when you talk to people about specifics of a case that's this complex, they're usually their answer is usually it's not me. So hematology says it's not them, respiratory says it's not them, and every other group says it's not them. So so this is actually in the realm of it's us, not them. You think he was going to say it's not them? Well, I'm just saying that that it's so often the case that this isn't our problem. This is a problem second. It's this is like demand ischemia. It's all. It it looks exactly like it is, except it's not me. It's just demand. So that that's the difficulty I have with involving people for one aspect of the case when they don't see the whole picture. So you feel this is still the territory of the the general internist and the specialist may may not solve it for you. I think so. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I do think so. Now, I, I, small tangent. So I always when I watch the Olympics, I always feel like I would appreciate it more if they had like a random guy also running the race, so that you could <laughs> see like this is a normal person, and then this is like what an Olympian looks like. Yeah. <laughs> so I I like frame of reference, and so. Why am I even talking about that? Um, Alex, I'm curious, when when you were trying to solve this like overnight in the middle of the night, did you get further than we did already? Like, were you already, did you guys already have it kind of figured out before the staff got in in the morning? Because we're like really far away, I feel, from solving this one. And I get the sense that you and the senior, I, I think you said it was uh, like Vivian on overnight. I kind of feel like you you two were probably solving this one before uh, before the morning even came around. We did, but we had the Google <laughs> machine, so I'm not necessarily fair. No, no, no. I, this is what I like. This puts pressure on us. We actually we need to do better. So we're we're falling behind our residents. Great residents, but we can do better. So, I'm sorry. What did you say, Alice? You had what machines? We 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 had up to date and the internet at our disposal to Google things. So well, we, you we have cheated. up to date here. Here, this is up to date. <laughs> this is up to date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so so Alex, what what uh, what kind of came next? Uh, so next, we did ask for help. We asked for hematology's help. Uh, just because it was the one blood bloodline down and the severe reticulocytopenia. And they went forward with a bone marrow biopsy. And they found a hypercellular marrow with normal megakaryopoiesis, increased granulopoiesis, and markedly absent erythropoiesis, showing only occasional erythroid precursors. There was no signs of any LPD. She also got an ultrasound of her abdomen, um, and I'll tell you that she did now have a diagnosis of cirrhosis without any focal lesions. Uh, her spleen, as I said before, was enlarged. She had small volume ascites. And to kind of close that piece of the puzzle off a little bit, we finally got notes from her GI doctor. And they said they were suspicious of a diagnosis of uh, PBC in her. And so um, even despite her AMA being negative, 
And so they asked us to actually start her on Ursodial in hospital. Whoa. But, yeah. how, do they, how, do they, how do they get there? I don't, I, I, so I was not involved with the notes. I never saw the notes myself, but that's, that's what I was told that they got the notes. And apparently the GI doc thought she had PVC. And did they biopsy her at some point? Did they do I a don't biopsy? think so. No, I don't see. I looked and I never saw a biopsy. So they, they divined it. They, they said. They, they were like, her presentation, it's got to be PVC. So Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, is, this, is this pulling things together for us? Do we know what's going on yet? Well, I think, I mean, this person has an aplastic anemia, right? Like, so, I mean, I, I think the question is, can you relate that back to, without having Dr. Google, right? Um, but, you know, I guess we could ask the hematologist, like, is, is this a possibility with the thymoma, right? Because... I'm not aware of it with IVIG. I know IVIG, you get hemolytic anemia, right? We all probably know that, you get autoimmune hemolysis. And so, but they're not behaving like autoimmune hemolysis. But, mm -hmm. you know, my knowledge of thymomas and the many manifestations of perineoplastic phenomenon, this person already has good syndrome, which is a noted perineoplastic phenomenon of a thymoma, right? So, you know, can we relate this to the thymoma or can we, is there some kind of classic infection that we're missing based on their immunodeficiency. I mean, Alex has pointed out the, IV, the IgG levels were dropping despite the IVIG therapy. So this person was not well protected and their immune system was deficient. And so I'd still go back to thinking about those, those couple of things, right? Mm -hmm. Did they give you an answer, Alex? Like to, to whether they think it's related to the person's already past medical history or? Yeah, so really interesting. So um, hematology did believe it was consistent with a pure red cell aplasia. And this is a known perineoplastic process associated with thymomas. It's quite rare, though. It's caused it's like 5 to 15% of cases, most common post-thymectomy. And out of interest, as you said, she already also had this perineoplastic process with the good syndrome. Another one to look out for as well post-thymectomy is myasthenia gravis, which is very interesting. But yeah, it it's a known associated perineoplastic process with thymoma. I, I think that's so interesting. Like what's also interesting is like this is like a like after resection, you're still getting the mm -hmm. uh, like resection and radiation, right? Um, you're still getting a, a perineoplastic phenomenon going on. And I think we or I at least have always kind of thought about perineoplastic stuff as you treat the perineoplastic disease by treating, you do have to treat the perineoplastic syndrome, but the actual treatment is treating the underlying cancer. And haven't you done that? Like, haven't you? Well, what about those thymoma? nodules, Danny? What about the nodules? Good question. Good question. Hmm. So maybe there's still some uh, thymoma kicking around somewhere. And that's what we said earlier on that, that uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty unusual to have, you know, you resect and then you radiate. So, so, well, so uh, yeah, so are, are, we, are we done? Have we solved it? Or are there still outstanding questions? Because I, I still think there's a few things think, on our list that need, need, uh, need work up. I think there's a few, right? So the thymoma, like a thymoma is very interesting in and of itself, right? It is an immune, like, what is a thymus? What does it actually do, right? I don't, I don't know if we understand that very well. And so what would a thymoma do to your immune system? We've now invoked like several perineoplastic phenomena and things like myasthenia gravis, right? And now this person has PVC. So are there any case reports of, you know, 
primary biliary well, cirrhosis. Well, hold on, Gerald. No one said they had the, the, the gastroenterologist said they had PVC. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I guess they have cirrhosis, right? So now, you know, once again, can we extend this to case reports of any sort of, you know, autoimmune, you know, uh, liver disease that is associated with thymomas? So if if we can wrap it up tidy like that, I mean, it, we're still left with the lung nodules, I guess, at the end of the day, right? Yeah, that's right. Barry, uh, Barry Chan, what are your thoughts? What uh, What's next uh, on, on your investigations list? What, what do you want to do to try and uh, pull, pull these threads together? I need to talk to someone who knows about <laughs> thymoma. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. almost never see them. I don't know hey. how they behave. I don't know about this perineoplastic phenomenon. I need to talk to someone who knows about this. It, it almost feels like uh, it, like the thymus almost feels like none of my business. Like it's a, it's a it's supposed to do its thing like before they get to me, right? Like the, that should be that's a, a pediatrics thing that like helps develop your immune system, and then it shrinks until I don't have to worry about it anymore. And um, and and uh, we kind of think about it only, only in you know we we've actually presented cases with people who have. Uh, thymic hypoplasia right with uh, de george syndrome we had a case of that like at the beginning of this podcast like a zillion years ago so like it's something that we only bump into so rarely that i i actually i totally agree with the barry chan like i would really do my best to, like not even guess like this is something that i really really need to read about but i i really do need to ask like a, a super expert on it so i think i'm going to get a lot more out of talking to their allergist immunologist um than i am about just doing some you know some personal investigation into it well as a general internist maybe i can jump in for a bit so about six weeks ago i saw a young woman who was presented with chest pain and was referred for what was thought to be a non an stemi and it turned out she didn't have that but she had a mediastinal mass in their anterior mediastinum which probably is thymoma her anticholinesterase antibodies are positive, although she has no evidence of Mycenae gravis, which suggests to me that there's a lot of activity going on, even if you don't see clinical activity. Mm. So back to the who would I ask about a thymus that's an expert in thinking about this and having looked at this, there are no experts in thymus because as Danny says, they all disappeared after you reached 13 and you became an adult. And the only experts in thymus are those people who take out the thymus or thymomas. And those are the, the uh, pulmonary surgeons, thoracic surgeons. And their expertise is not all that great because they're really just resecting these things. So we're back to here we are again trying to solve the problem because there is, as far as I'm aware, I just don't see, I just, I looked and I don't see anybody that I could say, ask a friend. Mm -hmm. So Alex, what, what did you folks do? Yeah. So like I said, hematology thought this was consistent with pure red cell aplasia. And when we did the research, um, there was an association with post, with thymoma, even post thymectomy. Um, we really did, I, it, well, I, I wasn't following the case at this point, but I don't think much was thought of in regards to the pulmonary nodules. Those were just for follow-up CT. Um, during her stay, she required a total of five units of PRBCs to make up for her, for her deficit, and she incremented appropriately. 
Her hemoglobin was about 115 at discharge, and heme also started her on prednisone because of her pure red cell aplasia. Um, and the last I saw when I looked at her outpatient labs was her hemoglobin st- has stayed sta- stable at 120, although I'm not entirely sure what her pred is doing. In terms of her initial volume overload, we did think it was high output failure in the context of her low hemoglobin. Understandably, like the oxygen requirements didn't make complete sense. Uh, but she, after she got that dose of Lasix with her PRBC, she remained euvolemic at discharge. For her splenomegaly and cirrhosis, we did wonder whether some of the splenomegaly, given it had kind of increased, was related to extramedullary hematopoiesis in the context of this pure red cell aplasia. Um, and it seemed, because it really seemed like leading up to the admission, her spleen had been increasing in size. And as far as I can tell, based on follow-up, she remains on her ursodial for her PBC and is followed by her GI doc with serial ultrasounds for that. And it looks like her liver function has been stable. I don't know if that was just like a red herring in this whole thing, which I think it kind of was. But my sense ultimately was this lady is just at high risk for a number of different autoimmune kind of conditions. And so maybe that was just one of them. Um, I'd have to look and see if there's any case reports to see whether all of this is, re- is associated or whether she just has PBC or presumed PBC um, secondarily. For her good syndrome, she remains on her IVIG. And for her bronchiectasis, oh, sorry, I do have information about the lung nodules. We actually did discontinue her septra in case that was contributing to some degree of bone marrow suppression. And so she's on inhaled pentamidine now uh, in the context of this. Uh, The lung nodules seen on CT were negative on an outpatient PET scan, so they were thought to be just kind of inflammatory or incidental finding and are just followed up by serial CT scans by her respirologist. You know, we cannot get away from Danny being the main main focus (laughs) of every one of these cases because whatever it starts out, whichever organ system we start with, whatever presentation we end up with, an auto-inflammatory immune response they could fall into this well, logic you know you know how much i love being the center of attention so um and and room stuff is just straight up interesting but i i have to say i was a little bit surprised that is so i did not really know that this particular like the red cell aplasia is treated with prednisone am i that that surprised me a little bit that's interesting so everything ultimately gets <laughs> prednisone yeah, no, what, yeah. What, what I mean, I, I assume that's true. But why does that work? Like, it, it, isn't the the problem like just a like it's a, a a bone marrow production problem? Why why is this being improved with steroids? Do I just totally misunderstand the the process here? Is it an so, antibody process? Yeah, so I think it like it's believed to be this perineal plastic process associated with autoantibodies directly against the red blood cells, and this is yeah like specifically associated with the thymomas, which is really interesting. But not hemolytic, right? So it's not, not just hemolytic. Right? Yeah, no, no, in the marrow, because all of Just That's directly really wild. autoantibodies Damn. against the red blood cells for, for hey, whatever got... reason. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think what we have to remember is like you may not always solve the entire case in one go, right? So like, I think the pulmonary nodules is a good example. Like they're small, you would probably follow them. You might order other diagnostic testing that's sufficient. Similarly with the liver, right? We have this questionable diagnosis of PBC, right? Ultimately to make the diagnosis, you need histology, right? But yeah. that, you know, like it is kind of within the domain of the 
I guess the specialist who's following to determine like, you know, how convinced they are of the diagnosis based on the information or whether they want to go for histology, right? And I'm often faced with that, you know, decision matrix in, in nephrology, right? Do you treat without the histology? Do you treat with histology? I mean, we very much in nephrology favor histology before we embark on therapy, but different people seem to have different, you know, inclinations from that point but of view. But in defense of the gastroenterologist in this case, ursodiol is a pretty benign treatment. Right. So, I mean, I can yeah. see that they would say, give it a try. I'm sure Follow. that, that yeah. anti-mitochondrial antibody was negative, but, you know, well, I guess, and, or just was it? The, the other thing to consider is she's been on IVIG chronically. Right. So maybe it is positive and we just don't, we can't tell. That was the only thing else possible, I guess. Alex, Alex, back off, please. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I just thought of it now. I just got excited. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so anyway, I, it's, uh, it's, it, I agree with you though. It's, it's, um, so we've we've solved some parts of this. I actually think that we solved the patients better. Fair, yeah, I think we solved a fair amount of this. Well, I I both uh, hate and love how much I learn in each of these episodes. It all it's always humbling and reminds me of how much I've learned and forgotten. Uh, and uh, Alex, thank you so much for uh, presenting that case. That's really fascinating, and we appreciate it. Alex, I think that you're about to be an R two. Oh, well, thank you. I guess I am kind of, so that's, <laughs> that's good. Great. Well, thanks to everyone for, uh, for uh, participating today. And uh, we'll say goodbye for now, but uh, more episodes coming, coming at you soon.